Welcome back to Streamageddon, the number one TV streaming podcast, where we are here to sell you on your dreams. I'm the host of this hour of shopping, Chris Barlow, and I'm joined by the illustrious purveyor of expensive goods, Diane Nora. Diane, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing so well. Thank you for that introduction. It really adds an air of sophistication. Well, we are sophisticated people, and you too, listener, can be sophisticated for just four easy payments of listening to this podcast. You could even do it in one easy payment if you want to sit through the whole thing. And that's because in this episode, we're going to be reviewing a new comedy on Showtime called I Love That For You. I Love That For You uh, stars Vanessa Bayer of Saturday Night Live fame as a wannabe host on a shopping network, and she gets a chance to fulfill her dreams by hosting a real show on a real fake shopping network, but there's a twist. And we'll get to that twist in the second half of the show. Do you like that? That's how we keep you tuned in. I love that for us. I do too. And you know what else I love? I love something called television. Not not just streaming TV. I love television. The thing that comes through the air, by which I mean through an expensive cable from your cable company, and brings you uh, fantastic weekly installments of shows that you just love. You know, shows like CSI, CSI Miami, CSI New Vegas, CSI New York, CSI LA, I assume, Law and Order, Law and Order Criminal Intent, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, uh, Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, Chicago Circus. All of my favorite shows Shows that are basically the same show. They come to me through a wonderful medium called network television. And we are here this week with a, a little special segment we're calling This Week in Network TV. That's the jazzy version of the Dateline theme. If you remember our <laughs> review of uh, The Thing About Pam, we, we played the jazzy version of the Dateline theme, and I'm addicted to it. But more importantly, it feels like the vibe of network TV. Am I right? Yeah, it's a little bit like something on an elevator. It's not too offensive. Uh, <laughs> there's a little something for everyone, but nothing, you know... Too good. Uh Uh-huh. A little something for everyone and nothing anyone really wanted. But okay. Sure. Sure. And that's a lot about, uh, a lot like the state of network TV these days. And we're talking about network TV this week because we are reaching the end of the traditional fall to spring network TV season. And I know, dear listener, you're thinking, what is that and why does it matter anymore? Surely we have better things to talk about. Well... We do not, apparently, because we're here with the end of the season, because the end of the season means upfronts. Do you know about the upfronts, Diane? You know, I didn't know much about upfronts until this week. Tell us more. Let's, yeah. (laughs) So, um, basically, upfronts are a, a big gathering that the networks host for their advertisers, seems like they also invite uh, press and critics where they talk about their upcoming fall lineup, um, specifically though for, for network TV. And they try it and basically get the advertisers to want to advertise on their shows. Correct. And, you know, advertising seems to be important, not just to network TV anymore, 
but to streaming TV as well. And, and we might talk more about that a little later today. But the big upfront presentations kind of set a deadline for the networks to decide which shows are staying, which shows are going, and which new shows they're green lighting. And it's a great time to look back at the last year of TV, in particular network TV, to see what trends are going on in network. Because at the end of the day, network TV might seem old and boring, but the most popular show on Netflix in 2021 was Criminal Minds, a network procedural from CBS. So lest us not forget, network TV is everywhere, even in the world of streaming, and the thing that you will be watching while you swiffer your apartment in five years is probably a network show running right now. I love it. I do too. I love network TV, even when I complain endlessly about how they're all Dick Wolf spinoffs. And speaking of Dick Wolf spinoffs, I thought a great way for us to start our look at uh, the state of network TV would be to dig into this uh, excellent uh, year-end list from Variety. They went through the most popular shows and the least successful shows. Most successful, least successful, according to the Nielsen ratings. Nielsen, quick aside, they are the old-school ratings people who tell us what network TV shows are getting in terms of their ratings. What does a Nielsen rating mean? Honestly, it doesn't matter. It means something to advertisers. It means a way to rank the shows. And what are we here to do? We're here to look at those rankings. So just take the Nielsen number as a magical number that somebody came up with through an algorithm, and that will make it feel high-tech enough for you, dear fan of streaming television. Does that make enough sense? Oh yeah, I'm with ya. Right? Right? Just algorithms and that's it. So uh, he- here's what I gleaned from the list that Variety put out. Number one, the list of most successful shows of the last season is absolutely dominated by NBC and CBS to a degree that I did not expect. Did this surprise you, Diane? It did. Yeah, I didn't know that they dominated so fiercely and also that so many are procedurals. Yes, so that's number two. I mentioned my good friend Dick Wolf. Well, let me tell you, the top of this list, it is uh, number one, This Is Us. And we should take a moment here to say This Is Us, not a Dick Wolf show. This Is Us, sappy NBC blah blah show. I could not care less about This Is Us. But as a fan of television, I am forced to care about This Is Us because it is the most popular show on network TV. And Diane, you're making a face like I've just offended you with my dismissive attitude towards This Is Us, the sad sack cry fest on NBC. It is a sad sack cry fest. That is not incorrect. However, it's a good one. It does the thing it does well. The acting's good. You know, one could call the writing manipulative, perhaps. One could. One could. (laughs) And perhaps one might. But it it does the thing that it's intending to do very well. And I I get why it makes people want to tune into the next episode. You know, and people do. It is still in its final season, the most successful show on network this past season. And it is ending. We are we are in the final season of This Is Us. And a lot of big questions around the upfronts this year have been, what is NBC's next big thing? How do they plan on filling the void that This Is Us is leaving behind? Uh, and I think the answer is they don't care because the rest of this list, literally number two, Chicago PD, number three, Chicago Fire. I'm sorry, two and two are tied. Chicago PD and Chicago Fire tied. Two, Chicago. Three, 
and we get to four. See, lists with ties are hard. We will include a link to this list in the show notes, and uh, listener, it, it is a dense list. It is a complicated list. It has a weird metho- methodology that I, I struggled with personally. And most As importantly, yeah, it's full of ties because the Nielsen numbers are pretty low these days. They used to be bigger numbers, but now fewer people watch network TV regularly, and so the numbers are smaller and often the same. So bear with us as I repeatedly misnumber these shows. So to recap, number one, This Is Us. Number two, Chicago PD. Number two, Chicago Fire. Different Chicago's, same number. Number four, Law & Order SVU. So that is the top four slots all on NBC. Three of the four are Dick Wolf properties. And then by the time we get to number six, we are at Chicago Med, another Dick Wolf property. Uh, NBC is just Dick Wolf City. Good for him. I mean, honestly, yes. How did he get in on that? I want, I want that. That's like the the marvel of TV, right? And so, what is of uh, network and, TV? And, of network TV. What is NBC's strategy? It seems going into the upfronts. That strategy is renew all the Dick Wolf shows. And so NBC has officially announced they're renewing all of the Dick Wolf shows, including the extremely mediocre revival of Law & Order. For more of our thoughts on that, you can look back in your podcast feed and be as sad as I think we were when we watched the revival of Law & Order. Uh, More importantly, though, NBC is not alone in this list with its uh, variety of Dick Wolf-based or Dick Wolf-influenced procedurals, because we also have CBS in here, and they have FBI— they have uh, FBI Most Wanted. <laughs> they have NCIS. They have all the letters. And CBS is just, they've got the letters. Did you know that FBI was a show? Yes, I did. And it's a Dick Wolf show. No. Yes. He's everywhere. Yes, Dick Wolf is everywhere. He's even on CBS. Why did no one give him an overall? I guess he just has multiple overall deals. I think he does. I think Dick Wolf is such a big deal. No one can lock Dick Wolf down. Dick Wolf does what Dick Wolf wants to do. It seems like he does it well. I think so. I think he's doing just fine. Uh, But that is uh, just a taste of this list because it goes down to like number 20 or something. The the point I want to get at is so much of this list is NBC and CBS crime procedurals. And then there's Mm -hmm. a little sprinkling of uh, Fox and ABC, but I I truly mean a little sprinkling. For Fox, their best showing is a fourth-place tie with uh, SVU, and that's for 911, uh, which is a hit Fox show about 911. And then the other entry for Fox is 911 Lone Star, which I assume is about 911, but in Texas? Texas. I don't know. Sounds likely. Yeah. Doesn't make me want to watch it more, I'm going to be honest. No, no. I, I, if you didn't get me with 911 set somewhere that's not Texas, you will not get me with 911 set somewhere that is Texas. <laughs> Very little comedy. So little comedy. In fact, if we're looking for comedy on this list, the number one comedy on this list is an eighth place tie between Young Sheldon and Ghosts, which are both on CBS. That is, that's as good as it gets for comedy on this list. And the only other comedy on this list is uh, in 18th place, The Neighborhood, also on CBS, and in 18th place as well, again, many ties, Abbott Elementary on ABC. 
That is ABC's only comedy on this list, and in fact, it is only one of three ABC shows that even made this list. The other two are, uh, of course, Grey's Anatomy, which they will milk until they cannot milk it anymore, and The Good Doctor, which is Grey's Anatomy light. It, and so it, The Good Doctor is not a comedy. The Good Doctor is the good another doctor drama. Is not. That is a drama procedural. about a good doctor. Medical procedural. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, cool, cool. It sounds, yeah. Uh, sure. I, I watch so much network TV. Actually, um, I have seen, I mean, I watched Abbott Elementary and The Neighborhood. That's my, you've <laughs> my seen, network You've TV. seen more of these shows. You told me you saw three whole minutes of Young Sheldon this week. I did. That is three more minutes of Young Sheldon than I will ever see. This is what happens when you're too lazy to get up and change the channel and you don't know how to use your fancy new remote. Fair, fair. At the beginning of that anecdote, I was like, you know, our listeners do not understand the phrase change the channel. They're like, surely you have a remote that just turns on a different app, right? (laughs) Now I understand. Yes, the remote is too fancy and you're doomed. You, you are like my parents who listened to a recent episode where we talked about Freevee and then asked me many, many times, how do I find Freevee on the remote? And I don't know because I can't see their remote. I don't know how that works. I thought everybody's remote had a Freevee button. Just a big Freevee button. Not yet. We can hope. We can dream. One remote mm. where just every button is another brand. Just no numbers, no up and down, just a grid of brand names. That is the remote for me. Excellent. It'll have a Dick Wolf button, too. I'm just calling it now. Okay. Then it could be on multiple channels. Sorry. Oh, that's complicated. You're right. We need an NBC Dick Wolf button. We need a CBS Dick Wolf button. Oh, that's There's going to be a lot of negotiating there. And Dick Wolf will probably make out very well in those negotiations. I'm just going to guess. Okay. That is a sampling of the best shows, the best performing shows from network TV this past season. And again, when I say there are only three comedies on that list, I am dead serious. There are only three comedies on that list, and and a vast majority of the things on that list have names like Blue Bloods, SWAT, NCIS Hawaii, and FBI International. Forgot to mention, not just as FBI a show, there's another one called FBI International, which makes no sense because that's not, they're, they're domestic. That's their thing. They're domestic, right? I don't, I don't understand. You could watch and find out, but I don't want that for you. Thank you. Thank you for respecting my beliefs. And, you know, speaking of beliefs, I believe some of the shows on this next list we're going to talk about are probably about to be canceled. But also, it's slim pickings for network TV, so I'm mostly interested to see which of these shows do not get canceled. Because now we are moving on to the lowest performing shows on network TV this past season. And this is a list that is almost the polar opposite of the first list. The first list is all crime procedurals on NBC and CBS. And this list is all of the comedies and a majority of the Fox schedule, I want to say. Like, I I look through this list and I'm like, ooh, just all of Fox, huh? Woof. And not Dick Wolf. And not the good wolf. It's true. Mm -mm. It's true. The the top of this list, which is the worst place to be on this list, the the top is the bottom. Keep up. Welcome to Flatch, which I'm sorry, I've heard of this show. And yet when I saw it there, I was like, there's not a show called Welcome to Flatch. That's you just made that up. I'm not aware what Welcome to Flatch is. And I'm also not aware of the show it tied with. 
Transplant. 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 I know. I read that title. Transplant, apparently on NBC. I, I thought it could be a fish-out-of-water comedy about, like, uh, making it in America. It could also be a gritty medical procedural about a hospital that mm-hmm. mostly does transplants. And my guess is it's probably the latter. And we just, NBC hasn't really cracked the medical procedural genre outside of Chicago Med yet. That's really ABC territory right there, you know? It is. They need Shonda. They really do. Or at least the good doctor, whatever the good doctor is. The good doctor is the one that has Schiff. Schiff is on the good doctor. That's what I know about the good doctor. Toby Ziegler is on the good doctor. Oh, Richard Schiff. I thought you meant Adam Schiff, the Adam congressman. Schiff. And I was like, See, gosh, he's busy. <laughs> yeah, he's a busy congressman. Yep. And, and he's a good doctor. The rest of this low list, boy, we are just, we are loving network TV, I can tell. Uh, A lot on this list that is uh, charitably described as network comedies no one's watching. That would be my charitable description of a lot of this list. So in this list, we have uh, The Big Leap, Pivoting, Grand Crew, Mr. Mayor, Keenan, American Auto, uh, The Great North, Home Economics... Queens, The Wonder Years, and one show I do know we've heard of, Blackish, which is in its final season and is in a decent place on this list because to be further down on this list is good. But that also shows you even Blackish is on this list. It's not a good time to be a network sitcom, even a long running beloved one. Yeah, I was surprised to see that so far down. I'm not. Only in that. It's it's really past its prime in some ways, and and all the networks are struggling on uh, maintaining network sitcoms in particular. What was most interesting to me is that it's in it's in the company of some shows that are definitely going to be renewed. Like from what I've seen, The Wonder Years is on deck to be renewed, even though that's performing pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is Home Economics, most likely. Again, according to, to Home the, Economics. Yeah, right. I know. According to what I've read, and and that's. Not a super popular show. Something like Home Economics, that's also on Hulu. They don't account for any of that in the Nielsen numbers, right? The Nielsen numbers are only about people watching it on television. Is that correct? Correct. The numbers that we're looking at on this list are, are traditional Nielsen numbers. So some of, this, some of these decisions could be that they're seeing a bump on streaming or that they're looking at this as a way to uh, beef up their streaming library, for sure. Because uh, even here, you know, we talked before about the ratings for Abbott Elementary getting better uh, when streaming was taken into account. And, mm-hmm. and that really, when the show started to take off, it was because of uh, delayed watching on streaming. These numbers don't take that into account. And so I think Abbott could maybe be higher up on this list if you take that into account. So clearly, that's a big factor. And that's why these numbers alone don't tell the whole story. But what I did think was interesting and worth talking about were the trends here. And that's, that's pretty clear. Comedy, mm-hmm. network comedy is struggling, which does not surprise me in many ways. Uh, an example I'll give is Mr. Mayor, which I do watch because I'm addicted to Ted Danson. Don't judge me. And the, I love Ted Danson. I, who doesn't? Living living legend. Ted Danson can make me watch paint dry. And that is essentially the experience of Mr. Mayor sometimes. But what what is wild to me is that Mr. Mayor airs on NBC. Meanwhile, Girls 5 Eva, which just returned for a second season and is looking pretty good so far, I am happy to have that show back, that is a Peacock original. And where do I wind up watching them both? 
Peacock because I do not watch things linearly on NBC. I, I stream them. And I did not realize Mr. Mayor was an NBC network comedy until like three weeks ago when it popped up on like an NBC interface. And I was like, wait, I can watch this on NBC? You're telling me that they schedule this show to air weekly in front of a live ish audience at home but girls five eva which is much more consistently funny and much more original and to me broadly appealing because it has sarah borelli's who is uh, honestly hot take the weakest part of the show for me but the reason (laughs) someone like my mother would watch it which is why it's a smart casting decision and why it's a really balanced ensemble that show which i think has broad appeal is a peacock original And maybe part of that is they don't want to make as many episodes per season, and that's how they make some of those decisions, perhaps. But it really opened my eyes up to like, wow, it's almost like if you have an idea for a network sitcom and it's really good, they push it to streaming. And if you have an idea for a network sitcom that feels like maybe you would like just toss it off, they're like, well, we'll toss that off on network to fill our our ad inventory, essentially. It feels the opposite of what you would have assumed a few years ago, where you would think that the mediocre content goes to streaming, especially to an upstart streaming service like Peacock, where they're like, well, let's see what what we can get people to check out on Peacock. And now they're saying, no, if that's good, put it on Peacock because we want people to check out Peacock. I do think that the comedies that they choose for network seem very conservative, not politically. I mean, in the fact that like stylistically, yeah, it's a lot of family comedies, like something like Blackish, or it's a workplace comedy. Something like American Auto or Mr. Mayor. American Auto or Abbott Elementary, right? Where it's just about about their workplace, but you don't necessarily get anything. Like Girls 5 Eva has a zaniness to it that doesn't seem like something that they would pick up on network right now. Yeah, yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. And I, I, I think we'll talk more about that a little bit later when we transition into some streaming topics. Uh, but overall, w- how does this make you feel about the state of network TV as we uh, look ahead to the fall season? It, it, does this feel bleak? It does. It, it feels particularly bleak to me as someone who, my, I mean, my main thing is comedies. Mm-hmm. And I also think that when I think of like the golden age of like an NBC comedy, like thinking of the 90s, early 2000s, when you had something like you could watch Frasier and Friends and, you know, there were just so many good, like strong comedies. And then even going seasons and seasons and seasons of content, too. So many, so many. And that even when they were less good in later seasons, you loved the character so much, so you kept watching. And I, I don't have that kind of relationship with any of these shows anymore. And it may just be that I'm putting my efforts elsewhere, but uh, yeah. yeah. Even my my last most favorite network comedy would absolutely be The Good Place uh, from Mike Schur. Again, I will watch anything uh, that Ted Danson stumbles into. But more importantly, The Good Place is excellent. It also is completely different than those heyday network comedies you're talking about. There are not a hundred episodes of The Good Place for me to binge or, or peruse on streaming or on uh, reruns, let, let alone the fact that The Good Place is a highly serialized story that in many ways is shocking that, that, that they did it on network because it feels like something designed for a streaming binge watch. That That is 
the trend in comedies now. A, a hit comedy has fewer episodes, fewer seasons, and a sometimes much more serialized story uh, than you would ever expect from a sitcom, from a sitcom, you know, where the situation is the, the, the joke. Here we have, like, the whole plot hinges on you knowing everything that happened up until the episode you're watching right now, let alone the character dynamics. Yeah. Another thing that I'm seeing with these like network comedies that they are picking is um, big crossover appeal in terms of demographics. Like you've got older characters and younger characters. So it seems like they're trying to make something that like you kind of non-offensive that you could watch with your grandparents. With your grandparents and your kids in mm-hmm. one living room. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And I think it is interesting on the drama side that all of the popular dramas, with the exception of This Is Us, are pretty much story of the week procedurals. That a lot of what people want on network still is to be able to tune in and have missed a bunch of episodes, and it doesn't matter. It does not matter that I did not see the last four seasons of Law & Order SVU. If I tune into an episode of Law & Order SVU, odds are I will understand what's going on. Somebody's tuning in. Somebody's tuning in on TV, but you know where else people are tuning in? They're tuning in on streaming, because this is Streamageddon, baby. We're going to talk about the streaming services. If you have been screaming into your pillow this whole time because network television is dead to you, well, number one, you have a weird way of listening to podcasts. And number two, don't worry. We're still here to talk about the latest news in streaming. And the latest news in streaming is pretty juicy, so I say... Let's get to it. Yes, we have breaking news tonight as we record on Wednesday night. Disney Plus is popular. It's official. I don't know if you were worried that people might not be interested in all of the content, all of the franchises, all of the things that everyone talks about. But Disney Plus, it turns out that was a good bet. Being involved in everything was a good move. Oh, do people like Star Wars? Do people like superhero movies? It seems that they do. I don't know. I'm still wondering if they like their childhood memories or or just having children and distracting them with something. There's a lot of things that Disney Plus bet on, and it turns out betting on all of those things was a good idea because Disney just had their quarterly earnings, and unlike some other streaming services, Disney Plus mm-hmm. is a hit. And continuing to grow. That is the, the key factor there. So the, the highlights here from The Hollywood Reporter, uh, Disney Plus hit 137.7 million paying subscribers, beating Wall Street's expectations. They added just shy of 8 million new subscribers last quarter, and Wall Street was expecting 4.5 to 5 million. So that is, a, that is not quite double what was expected, but it is close to. That is a big improvement over already... I would say high expectations. This puts Disney Plus on their their war path that they've described to have like five bajillion subscribers uh, by 2023 or something uh, insane. That's that's factual numbers there, people. Uh, the other interesting part, though, is Disney said they're making more money per subscriber, but they are also losing more money on Disney Plus overall because that is the true story of streaming. The the faster you grow and the bigger you get, somehow the less money you're making. And that's Disney Plus for you. But I, I think they'll be okay. I think they can afford it. Something tells me 
those kids have a future. It's going to be fine. And and also, to say, Disney Plus did not grow in isolation. They also reported good numbers for Hulu, which gained 300,000 subscribers to reach 45.6 million, which is, again, particularly impressive when you remember Hulu does not exist outside the U.S. Like, Hulu is this weird mutant mm-hmm. U.S. creation. Overseas, all the weird, raunchy Hulu content like Pam and Tommy is just on Disney Plus, which I just love the, the vision of opening up the Disney Plus app and getting, like, Encanto. Pam and Tommy. Sure. They go together. I mean, if you're watching in Europe, their their TVs already have, you know, it's fine. plenty of that content. Yeah, you so it really doesn't matter. Uh, and, and also ESPN Plus, part of the, the Disney expanded universe, ESPN Plus added a million subscribers to reach 22.3 million. So all three pillars of the Disney bundle are doing very well and growing at unexpectedly good pace. I, I, part of me is surprised the growth was so good on Disney Plus this last quarter, just because, like, what was the big thing on Disney Plus this last quarter? Moon Knight? Moon Knight, I guess. I didn't make it through more than two episodes of Moon Knight, and I don't know many people who are, like, really jazzed about Moon Knight. Everyone at my day job is super jazzed about Multiverse of Madness. But I have heard no one, after the first couple episodes, no one has asked me, hey, did you see Moon Knight? No, I don't know any watchers of, of Moon Knight, and I know so many Oscar Isaac fans. Yeah, that's the real twist, is uh, if you don't have the Oscar Isaac fans, who do you have? It might be one that, like, gets a late following, you know, like, when it's all out, some folks binge it. Is it all out? It is. Holy. It is. The first season finished. <laughs> mm-hmm. I okay. know that much. I know mm. that I don't know what happened. And may never. We'll find out. It also is a weird one in that so far it does not tie directly into any of the movies or the extended cinematic universe. So it's not like uh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness killing it at the box office. No surprise there. But a big factor is that it is uh, essentially the story sequel to WandaVision in that it takes place after WandaVision, and Wanda is a major character in Multiverse of Madness. And so to understand what's going on with Wanda in Multiverse of Madness, it behooves you to have seen WandaVision. And that has always been the grand master plan of the Disney plus Marvel Cinematic Universe tie-in situation is we want you to feel like you have to watch the shows in order to better understand the movies and that you have to see the movies in order to understand the shows. And that is a very nice loop for Disney in terms of uh, retention. Yeah, absolutely. I've had several people tell me recently that like one of their big pandemic projects was doing like a full Marvel rewatch yes. in order, you know. Yes. Um and these are people who had seen all the all, all the movies already. Yeah. And so that none of that surprises me. What does surprise me is the timing for Disney Plus to grow so much right now when there's no new Star Wars show, the new Marvel show doesn't tie into any of the IP. It you can't see that Spider-Man movie on Disney Plus yet. That one, if that had hit Disney Plus in the last mm-hmm. quarter, I'd be like, oh, everybody wanted to rewatch the Spider-Man movie. Or if you're really cheap like me, everyone was just waiting for it to go free on Disney Plus because you didn't want to go to a COVID, you know, um, Petri dish party uh, to see Spider-Man. Right. And then I think of the other big superhero movie this past quarter was Batman, the Batman. And that's Which on you HBO. you could immediately watch on HBO Max. I know. Right. I know. So- 
Not immediately, but close enough. Uh, so uh, no matter what, it means good things for Disney. This is a good sign for Disney and Disney Plus's ambitions. And it's also maybe a good sign for the overall streaming market, because obviously we've talked a lot about Netflix recently and how their subscriber growth has not just stalled, but seems to be dipping a bit. And uh, that is worrisome, again, in an industry where money seems to be meaningless as long as you are growing. But then if you stop growing, suddenly money matters. And so it is good for the industry, good to, to creators and viewers who want more new content to know growth is still happening. More projects will get greenlit with funny money that means nothing, as long as, again, some companies, some streaming services are continuing to grow and can sell their investors on, well, yes, we're going to lose a ton of money now, but we'll make up for it, dot, dot, dot. The, the other question I have, and I wish we could see this with the numbers, is are these new viewers leaving another streaming service? I don't know how segway, you get the segway. numbers on that, but man, <laughs> yeah. I would love to know how many of those new Disney Plus subscribers came from the Netflockalypse. It might be a little soon for it to be a Netflockalypse effect, but maybe not. Because as we know, all attention has been paid on Netflix's sudden stalling growth. We've talked about this at length, and there is more news this week. Uh, What we already knew was that Netflix is going to pursue an ad-supported tier. They made that super clear when they revealed their not-so-hot growth numbers. By not so hot, I mean negative growth numbers. Uh, So what was new this week is in a company memo, they revealed, Reed Hastings revealed that they're going to have their ad-supported tier up by the end of the year if everything goes according to plan, which is different than the we're going to figure it out over the next couple of years messaging that came out uh, after their earnings call. I have some concerns, to say the least, about this pushed-up timeline. Some of those are personal in that I don't want to uh, get kicked off this the service that I share. <laughs> oh, because we're we're gonna get to part two of this comment. Netflix also revealed that they are gonna crack down on password sharing at the end of the year. Pretty pretty bluntly, they they said that's something they're looking at at the same time as introducing the ad supported tier. That these are gonna go hand in hand. And so I understand your hesitation about this news in that you do not want to have to pay for your own Netflix, I share that hesitation with you, as does, I assume, a majority of our listeners, because who actually pays for anyone's Netflix? I don't know. The other part of my concern, though, is that right now, I think Netflix, in terms of its like technology and interface, is one of my favorite streaming apps. Not the content itself, but it's just easy to navigate. I know what I'm doing. I like... I like the way that it's set up. It works pretty well, I think. But if they're going to be adding in this ad tech in a very rushed timeline, I'm just worried that it's not going to go very well. Like, do they do they have the technology to do that at this point ad tech is hard ad insertion is hard never mind the fact that a lot of netflix originals never expected ads to be in them so if you're going to insert ads anywhere there are not necessarily ad breaks built in like there are in abbott elementary or another show that was made for network but then moves to a streaming service that has an ad supported tier okay fine you know where the ads go they go where they would go if you aired it on tv 
But then there are uh, services like Freevee, the uh, ever popular Freevee, which airs Mad Men, which is one of the strangest relationships ever. I'm like, how did they get Mad Men? How did nobody else bid more for Mad Men? Or did Amazon and their big Freevee money go, we're demanding Mad Men, and more importantly, we're demanding to put it on our free ad-supported service so that if you love Mad Men, you must sit through bad ads. And the thing about Mad Men on Freevee, and I've seen this and I've heard it from other people, it, the ad inserts do not line up properly with where the ad breaks were in the original episodes. Oh. They are often real close and not quite. And there are so many streaming shows on so many different services where I have seen the ad break come two seconds before it's supposed to come, which then causes sometimes a dramatic moment or a funny punchline to be cut off slightly. Then you watch the ad, then it returns from the ad to the last two seconds of that scene, then it fades to black, then it opens back up to the next act, which is jarring and not at all what the creators intended or what I, the viewer, intended to experience. Absolutely, and just... I mean, it's going to kill a comedy because it ruins timing and in comedy timing is everything. And then in like a serious drama too, it's just like going to, can you imagine, you know, you're watching your queen's gambit and then just as it's building to this like intense emotional catharsis, it's like, like you know, capital one. <laughs> it's like, oh no, that sounds terrible. I don't know. Yeah, I have concerns. I hope that they nail it because there are some shows on Netflix I like a lot. And I would like it to stick around so not every, you know, streaming service is part of some other behemoth. But, oh, this, yeah, the rush, the rush job doesn't bode well. Yeah, the rush is concerning. And, you know, we were just talking about Disney+. Plus. It's worth mentioning, with Disney+, Plus still losing money on the service, they are going to add an ad-supported tier. They've said that already. And they they clearly are taking their time trying to figure out how the, those ads will fit into shows like the Marvel shows, the Star Wars shows, that were not written with ad breaks built in. And so Disney, already working on it, has an easier task because... They, they don't have that big of a library of shows to worry about figuring out. They'll have to figure something out. Maybe it won't be good. What will they do with movies? They have a lot of challenges there. But Netflix has all of those challenges and an exponentially larger library of things to insert the ads into. So just so many more places where the ad insertion could be bad, jarring, sloppy, stupid, could kill the timing of a joke or undercut the drama of a scene. It is 10 times, if not more, harder for Netflix to do the quality control on that. Where Disney has to figure it out, but then they have, like, what, 20 series? Like, they got to have somebody sit Mm -hmm. down and watch the ad breaks in the Mighty Ducks show and go, those ad breaks don't ruin the Mighty Ducks show. It's also, like, such a change in their... Uh, identity as a company, not only just because they said, hey, we're not going to do ads, and now they're doing ads, but that so many of their advancements, it seems like, over the years have been in making the experience really fluid and seamless so that, you know, you can skip the intro that started on Netflix or, you know, it just like one episode bleeding into the next. The whole season drops at once so that you're really, you know, just like, 
down to binge. That yeah. is what Netflix had kind of perfected, I think. And now this is this is a potentially significant disruption. Yeah, and we'll have to see how disruptive it is. The fact that they're speeding it up is the concerning part for me. I've I, honestly, at the end of the day, I'm like, sure, they should add a, an ad supported tier. It makes sure. perfect sense from a business angle and from a consumer angle. If if Netflix has to get more expensive, offer me a cheaper way to get into it. And if I don't hate ads, that's a fair trade. Or if I don't watch a lot of shows on Netflix, but I want to have it for the things I do, well, maybe there I pay for ad-free HBO Max because I love all the shows on HBO Max and I don't want ads there. But I don't care enough about Netflix. Maybe I, I want it for when Squid Game comes back, but I don't care if there are ads in Squid Game because I don't watch enough things on Netflix for that to bother me, right? You let the consumer make that, that cost-benefit mm-hmm. choice. Great. The issue is if you speed it up and you do it badly, you're going to tarnish the brand oh, no. and you're going to just deepen your problem, which is consumers are getting a little one a little tired of the content on netflix maybe they're they're not seeing anything exciting and original to keep them there and two they're starting to feel a little scared that you're going to kick them off (laughs) that you're going to shake them down because again as we said before the other part of this is they say they're coming for password sharing they've been coming at it slowly for a few months and now they're like nah it's just here we're gonna do it and there is one quote i wanted to read Uh, from the Netflix earning call that I thought just phrased it so well. This this is the window of what's to come. They said, uh, this is Greg Peters, Netflix chief operating officer in their, their recent earnings call. So if you've got a sister, let's say, that's living in a different city, you want to share Netflix with her. That's great. Huh? That's great. He says that's great. And he adds, we're not trying to shut down that sharing but we're going to ask you to pay a bit more to be able to share with her. I am that sister, and I am concerned. I am that brother. I am that son. <laughs> Here we are. And I am concerned, too. He, what he's really saying is, we don't want to stop you, but we do want to make you have a really exhausting conversation with your loved ones and perhaps have to Venmo them once a month. Here we go. You sound so excited. You sound so excited for more adventures in the Netflockalypse. Obviously, more about the Netflockalypse uh, coming soon to a stream again near you. But there's another Ocalypse I wanted to touch on briefly in the streaming universe: the Peacockalypse, which I need to make a fun sound for. I assume it'll be a peacock bleeding and then uh, the explosion. That's the Peacockalypse. Uh, do, you know, does Peacock even have an that was audio? It. That's it, right? That's it. That's when you tune into a Peacock show, it begins with, you know, NBC's got the cute chimes. <laughs> NBC. And Peacock has a large land bird screaming for dear life. Yeah, that feels right. That really feels on brand. And, you know, the Peacockalypse is not actually bad news for Peacock. The Peacockalypse is bad news for Disney 
who owns Hulu, which, as you might recall, airs a ton of NBC shows next day and has a bunch of back seasons of popular NBC shows as well. Because, again, if you have not remembered every word I've ever said on this podcast, Hulu was created as a joint venture from ABC, NBC, and Fox. Then ABC, Disney, bought Fox, so it became mostly a Disney thing, and NBC was also there. And then NBC was like, but we have our own thing called Peacock, and why are we giving Disney all of this content? That doesn't make a lot of sense. And so then Disney finally went, well, you can take it away if you want. We're not going to really buy you out anytime soon. Balls in your court, Disney, uh, NBC. has so many players. And so NBC went, yeah, fine, okay, we'll just take our stuff and put it on Peacock uh, without canceling any of our existing contracts, which means it will be a slow, confusing process designed to frustrate all of us. And that slow, confusing process begins this fall when NBC will begin moving all of its next day airing and uh, content like that, anything that they can get out of, basically, to Peacock. And that means Hulu is going to see an exodus of NBC Universal content. And a lot of that content is popular comedies. I, I think we could agree mm-hmm. that popular comedies are a big factor on, on Hulu, and a lot of them are NBC Universal content. And so interesting news this week that Hulu has signed a deal to be the streaming home of Shit's Creek, which made a name for itself on Netflix. Netflix. Ah! And so my question's here. There's a few. One, did Netflix not want it anymore, or did Hulu bid a fortune for it? We don't know the numbers. But I think the, the biggest question is, did Netflix let it go, or did Hulu up the ante so much that Netflix said, we're not going to pay that much? It's just not worth it. They must have, unless Netflix was just counting on the fact that at this point everyone's seen it. That might be the other factor, and, and that's proprietary data Netflix doesn't share. We don't know, did, did Schitt's Creek have its peak already, and is it declining in, in interest on Netflix? And so they thought, well, it's not a big deal. If you've got Netflix, you've already watched it. Well, another part of the Netflix identity is that a lot of their decisions are data-driven, so yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there was you know, something there that either it was just... Uh, an offer they couldn't refuse. Or, I, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder. But it certainly uh, paints an obvious picture of what Disney's trying to do with Hulu. They're, they're trying to reassure you Hulu is not going to wither and die. Hulu is still going to have a great catalog of content for you to watch. Obviously, it's going to have all the programming from ABC airing next day or something like that. They also have their branding with FX. And I found this quote pretty interesting in terms of just painting a picture of what Hulu is becoming. This is from Variety. Link is in the show notes. Uh, They said, Schitt's Creek will join Hulu's library of comedies, including ABC's Abbott Elementary and Home Economics, Freeform's Single Drunk Female, FX's Dave, and originals including Only Murders in the Building, Life and Beth, and How I Met Your Father. And, And of those, most of those shows are pretty popular, with the exception maybe of how I Met Your Father and Home Economics, but I th- I thought, what a broad spectrum to paint, that like Hulu is the home of all of these great comedies, like these network comedies from ABC, this raunchy adult comedy from FX, and the original ones, of which Hulu still has some. I watch like all these shows. I think these are all good. <laughs> and they're all good shows. That's the thing is, there's a couple things on that list I have not seen, but the majority of that list I have seen and like. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this list. That makes me be like, oh, if I'm like kind of weighing my streaming services, Hulu's not going anywhere with this list. No, no. And I and so it's interesting to see them being proactive about it. Uh, the Schitt's Creek deal doesn't officially kick in until October when their deal with Netflix ends. But that is right on timing for the Peacocalypse. Uh, because that's when Hulu will be looking to kind of, I think, bolster their comedy side because they're going to lose things like Saturday Night Live. And all of those great right. NBC shows that I mentioned in the earlier segment that were all on the bad list from Variety. <laughs> so sad no. you will not be able to watch American Auto on Hulu anymore. What will the people do? I guess they'll have to tune in to Dave. That's a good alternative. Genre-wise, kind of different, but a good alternative. (laughs) Going to continue through a round robin here of more streaming news. Number one, we're talking about Schitt's Creek. Let's talk about a headline that shamelessly dropped Schitt's Creek in it in order to get my attention. This is a headline from uh, Variety that said, How Roku is trying to make shit happen with Canadian sitcom Children Ruin Everything. And this is essentially an article about... Roku, which is really doubling down on its originals, which you can watch on the Roku channel, which is built into your Roku, if you haven't figured that out already, Uh, they have picked up a really popular new Canadian comedy called Children Ruin Everything, which is written by a uh, uh, writer from Schitt's Creek and Kim's Convenience, which are the two most popular Canadian comedies that are not Letterkenny. And, uh, okay, this is interesting. What is interesting to me in this story is they're actually not just re-airing it the way that Pop TV took the American rights for Schitt's Creek and then Netflix took the streaming rights for Schitt's Creek. They're now involved in the development process. The article says from like script to production, Roku is involved in the whole process now. And that's interesting. I also wonder, is this something Roku can keep up? Because Roku went from... Uh, a stock price of over $400 a share last July to a stock price that's hovering below 80 a share right now, their stock has lost about 80% of its value since July of last year. And, and obviously the stock market is not my area of expertise, and we all know inflation, wars, things are happening that are bad for the stock market right now. But most stocks are not down 80%. And so you have to wonder, a lot of these decisions that Roku made to expand into originals uh, came last year. They came last summer, last fall. Do they have the, the leeway with their, their money, literally, with their you know, investors to bankroll that kind of expensive strategy? Because as we also mentioned many times in this episode already, growing your audience with streaming is ridiculously expensive and you are expected to lose a lot of money while you do it. Yeah, though it does seem like something that if you have like a Shit's Creek like base where you have a wide audience and that like sweetness where it's not even about the jokes that much, it's more about the like good feeling is really seems to be uh, doing well across the board right now. Yeah, I would say I feel like that's a reason a lot of people love Abbott Elementary. Because yeah. it's it, it has that feel-good vibe. I will say there's one big difference here, though, between Schitt's Creek specifically. Schitt's Creek was in obscurity when it began on Pop TV. 
and became extremely popular when people found it on Netflix. And the key thing there is people already had Netflix, Netflix. and were tuning in to things on Netflix. And certainly, if you own a Roku, you have the Roku channel. But do you open it and browse in it regularly? They seem to be positioning this as a way to get people to check out the Roku app. But that's not how it worked for a lot of these shows that went from obscurity to darling, you know? These were shows that got picked up Mm -hmm. by an app that already had an engaged audience looking for the next thing. I, I, I struggle to see how this strategy works for Roku, but I will be curious if it does, to say the least. Me too. I would love to have another, you know, home for good comedy. But I, as I we doubt mentioned that earlier, been... there's not a lot of good homes for good comedy right now. So bring it on. Bring it on. Let's see, Roku. Put us in the, your little weird Roku world. Speaking of little weird worlds I don't understand... Uh, this week, we learned that Redbox, yes, Redbox, the DVD <sighs> rental kiosk that haunts the suburban grocery store in your beach town. Like, I, my only experience with Redbox is you're at a vacation home in some town that you'll never go back to, and you are renting a house that has a weird old flat screen TV with a big fat DVD player, and it's raining, and there's nothing to do, and somebody goes, can we watch a movie? And you realize, that there's just this DVD player hooked up to the TV. So you go to the, like, Safeway, and there's a red box in the front of the Safeway, and you rent a, a, like, eight-year-old movie. And you go, yeah, we did it. We had a good vacation doing something we could have done at home, but in the most complicated, obscure way possible. Absolutely. I think that other function is that a lot of people just got rid of their dvds because they'd be like oh i don't need that it's on netflix and then without realizing netflix that content might be gone oh they're like i really want to watch that well maybe it's at the red box at the jewel osco Mm -hmm. that feels right right anyway why are we talking about red box well because i have great news red box is thriving and surviving under its new corporate owner chicken soup for the soul does that mean that's going to get, like, Christian and motivational? I am so confused. And it's, so this is a $375 million deal. Sure. Redbox is worth that much. Why not? And it, it is from, uh, again, Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. They own Crackle. Do you remember Crackle? <laughs> it took a minute when I was reading this to jar my Crackle memory. Your Crackle and uh, Crackle so, memory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But and the amazing thing about Crackle is Crackle is free. Yeah, it's a freebie. Ad supported, but free. Yeah, <laughs> it's a freebie. It's a real freebie that Crackle, and and Crackle was bought by Chicken Soup for the Soul uh, from Sony, who invented Crackle, and then Sony went honestly, we don't understand streaming at all, and we're going to stick to making video games, and that seems to be working fine for Sony, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, though now there's all these video game TV shows. Maybe they maybe out. they made a huge mistake. Maybe Crackle could have been the home of every video game TV show that's not an Xbox video game. All the Sonic shows that I know and love but haven't seen yet because they haven't been released yet. All those Sonic shows, they could be mine on Crackle. Okay, I have nothing else to say about Redbox and Crackle and Chicken Soup for the Soul. I just couldn't not talk about Redbox and Crackle and Chicken Soup for the Soul because somehow they all belong in one sentence together. 
somebody must be watching. If you are watching something on Crackle or through Redbox, please let us know. Please let us know. Podcast at streamageddon.com. I have to know, what are you watching on Crackle? And where was the last <laughs> Redbox you encountered? I need to know these facts. And we will report back to you, dear listener. But before we do, a couple of quick headlines to get us through our news segment. HBO has announced the return of Westworld in June with a creepy trailer that involves bugs flying out of a robot lady's mouth. That is all I ever want to say about the creepy trailer for season four, four of Westworld. I don't care for that show. <laughs> Fantastic. Moving on. Peacock has canceled the Save by the Bell reboot. I only bring this up because we mentioned uh-huh. it before. I remember when that launched, I did not have Peacock Premium at the time, and I kind of got into the first couple episodes, and then they threw up the paywall and said, if you want to watch more of this nostalgia bait reboot, you have to pay for Peacock Premium. And I went, no, thank you. And I think that is what doomed the Saved by the Bell reboot. But who knows? It's gone forever now. Also in news of shows ending, but this one's a little more complicated, Amazon has announced that Jack Ryan will be ending after season four. This will be terrible news to my parents, but I'll break it to them easy, I promise. Uh, More importantly, Jack Ryan season three has not aired yet and does not even have a release date. So they've just decided we're not going to do a fourth season, which we haven't made yet, let alone told you when you can see the third season, but we just want to get out in front of this and say no more Jack Ryan. That is confusing. I assume John Krasinski just said, I'm not doing another one after that. There has to be a really black and white reason where it was like, I'm just not going to do it anymore. And they went, okay, well, we'll just lock you in for that last one and we'll tell people that's the last one. But why would they tell people before they started watching? I, you know, my my charitable assumption is a lot of people work on the show. And if you work on the show and you know, you you need to know if you're going to have a job after season four. And if they tell you and they go, shh, keep it quiet. Well, they're not going to keep it quiet. Someone will leak it. So they might as well just say it publicly. That makes sense. And then, yeah, all those people are going out for jobs. So it's kind of hard to keep that news on the wraps, I suppose. Right, I assume. Speaking of shows heading into their fourth season, Succession. The look on your face. I ah, I almost queued up the music, and I was like, it's too soon. We're not ready for the succession music. This show will just devolve into a pure succession fan podcast at some point when season four airs. I already know. But instead, we'll just take any little crumb of succession detail we can get right now. And that would be uh, creator Jesse Armstrong uh, accepting a an award for um, uh, McFadden. Fanta? A BAFTA? Oh, yeah. A BAFTA McFadden. for McFadden. Because uh, everyone on that show is secretly British. And so a secretly British actor uh, won a very British award that was accepted in Britain somewhere by Jesse Armstrong. And uh, he teased that they've finished writing season four. And that season four uh-huh. is mm, uh-huh, moving forward in case you were worried that they got writer's block and were going to give up on it. But that also tells us it's really far away because they haven't filmed literally anything yet. Uh, the other exciting succession news this week is about Uncle Ewan. Everyone loves Uncle Ewan. That's James Cromwell playing uh, Uncle Ewan. What more do I need to say than Uncle Ewan? Cousin Greg's grandpa. That's correct. Uncle Ewan. And anyway, James Cromwell, the actual person, superglued his hand to a counter at a Starbucks in Midtown Manhattan this week to protest the exorbitant price of nut milk. Also oat milk, plant milk, plant milk. 
I love that he's a conservationist and it tracks with his character. This is like the tiniest of spoilers for season three of Succession, but uh, it tracks with his character uh, deciding to leave his money to Greenpeace. Yes. Yes. It feels so on brand. I was like, wow. Here's the thing. As a New Yorker, uh, sometimes I walk down the street and I see an actor from Succession walking around. I see Peter Friedman going to Fairway and I go, oh, the Succession people, they're real and they live in the real New York and I'm living in Succession, which is the dark, twisted fantasy I want to live in as opposed to the dark, twisted fantasy we actually live in, right? And so to hear that uh, James Cromwell mm-hmm. is Uncle Ewan in reality just seals the deal. Like, yes, Succession is real and I live in that dark timeline instead of this dark timeline. I love that that actor and I think that I support any um, things that he wants to do to make the world a little less polluted and awful. Absolutely. And I support lowering the price of nut milk and oat milk at Starbucks. Me too. 100%. And on that extremely topical note, it's time to finally get to our review this week. It's a show called, it's a seamless transition, I'm sure. It's a show (laughs) called, I love that for you. Because, you know, I love nut milk for you, Diane. And I love oat milk for me. I love Vanessa Bayer on this show. There's the transition. And speaking of (laughs) Vanessa Bayer, I don't have a theme song for this show because they haven't really played one yet. So instead, I I actually got the audio of one of my favorite moments from the pilot. Uh, So take a listen to this like 30 second clip of I love that for you. An architect uses a pencil to build a house. An astronaut uses a pencil to plan a journey to the moon. And, And by the way, when was the last time you wrote a letter to someone you love? What I have for you today is a portal to the person that you are meant to become, the life that you are meant to live. With this pencil, your dreams can come true. And why shouldn't they? Why not you? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's Vanessa Bayer selling you a pencil. I would buy a pencil from her. A hundred percent. And if, listener, you're wondering, what was she doing there? So, uh, I Love That For You is a show about a woman who is obsessed with a home shopping network called SVN and wants desperately to be a star on SVN. And in that scene, she has gone to, like, basically a blind audition. They're having, like, a, a contest where you can come audition for a spot hosting on SVN. And her audition, she walks into a room and they go, sell us that pencil. And she surprisingly nails it. I think so. It is a moment. It is actually a moment that crystallized uh, the show to me in a way. It, she's fantastic when she sells the pencil. She is extremely awkward in her regular life. But when she is asked to sell the pencil, she sells the pencil. She transforms into a different person. And then her pitch about the pencil is about how this object can transform you into the person you're meant to be. And she is on a quest to transform herself into the person she thinks she's meant to be. I love that the person that she thinks she's meant to be is not like a pop star who lives in Tokyo, you know, but is like this, um, you know, special value network star or even just like 
special value network, not even star. She just wants to be like on the Employee. channel, yeah. <laughs> which is in Pennsylvania somewhere. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's like she wants to go from Ohio all the way to Pennsylvania. You know, Such a it's, big move. Well, and it is for her, but it, it feels like um, the modesty of that ambition, but how um, for her it's still so consuming is something that I love about it. You know, it's like in her world, these people are the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. And that is something I really love about the first two episodes of this show. So for, for spoiler reasons, we're, we've watched episodes one and two of season one, and that's what we'll be discussing. And that, that angle of her dreams are both real and extremely quaint in certain ways that, that are not just quaint in that, oh, you must be quaint to work for the Special Value Network, but in that even the people at the Special Value Network look at her like she is a crazy woman who is so mm-hmm. out of her mind to be thrilled to work at the Special Value Network. The rest of them see it as a job to punch in and out of for the most part, and she sees it as a calling. I mean, and in some ways I share that. Like, I love television so much that when one of my friends is like, they interviewed me for the news, you know, like You're a like, local really? news segment. I'm like, really? When can I watch? I'll tape it. <laughs> you know? Yes. Like, when I see like a local weatherman, it, it absolutely uh, transports me. So I do, I, I find that part of the show really charming. And I think that Charming is a word that I would use to describe these first two episodes in a lot of ways. Like Vanessa Bayer, who a lot of folks may know from Saturday Night Live, she just has like a certain uh, likability to her. She's got that Midwestern values thing going on. I just kind of want to, you know, have a coffee with her. Yeah, and she has an awkwardness that is both a little mm-hmm. cringy at times, but in a way where you f- you know you've done that. It is she holds up a mirror of awkwardness to you. There's a moment in the pilot she's working at a Costco because her dad works at Costco and she lives with her parents and uh, she is doing the the sample. She's at the demo table and some glamorous former classmate walks up and is like, "Oh my gosh, Joanna." And they they start talking and Joanna's trying to make it seem like, "Oh, she just is sometimes at Costco helping out. She doesn't really just work at Costco." And then she asks her friend, "What have you been doing?" And her friend is like, "Well, you know, I'm back and forth to Italy all the time." And Joanna goes, me too, me too. (laughs) And it's that thing of like, yes, you've done that. I've done that. We've all done that thing where you're like, oh, me too, me too. And then you realize you've said something ridiculous. And they look at you like, you go back and forth to Italy all the time for Costco? It's like when you tell the waiter, like, enjoy your meal. You know, and you're like, no, what did did I I say? say? (laughs) Yeah. And so there are moments like that where I, I feel welcomed into her perspective because I see myself in her and I feel like, oh, she's vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. All our dreams are ridiculous to someone else. And then there's the other part of the show. The other part of the setup I haven't gotten to yet, because there's one really big detail you have to know about Joanna, Vanessa Bayer's character on this show. She's a cancer survivor who then lies and says her cancer has come back because she almost loses her job at SVN at the end of the pilot. And the only Mm. way she can keep it 
is to say my cancer's back. And an important, I guess, detail here is she spends most of the pilot avoiding talking about her cancer. Most of the pilot is around her wanting to get free of her past. She doesn't want her parents to baby her anymore. She doesn't want to live with her parents anymore. She wants to pursue her dreams and take risks that she felt she could never take when her life was really controlled by the fact that she had cancer as a child and that she was a survivor of cancer, always on the lookout. And now it's been over a decade since she's been cancer-free and she wants to be free of that. But the one thing that saves her dream job when she's about to lose it is to play the cancer card in the most ethically dubious way possible. Oh, yeah. I mean, what she's doing, I I don't think there's a way to say that it's acceptable. There's just no getting around it. It's wrong. It's still... uh, They kind of make you not hate her still because, number one, it's Vanessa Bayer and she's very likable and she's sweet. And also because you have seen that as a young person, she was sick and that that clearly has had a big impact on how she's grown to socialize in the world like she seems like she missed a lot of things she seems so lonely yeah she she's adolescent adolescent in her attitudes towards a lot of things she has not fully matured uh, as an adult and so she does feel stuck in that time in her life and i think they're they're plumbing that in her character but it does it does really make it complicated to watch because you also see a flashback to her uh, as a child with leukemia m- blatantly manipulating a group of nurses to steal their entire cookie cake and that's something that Vanessa Bayer has talked about in interviews is based on her real life she was uh, she is i should say a mm-hmm. cancer survivor and um that she talked about how like she got to a point where she was like well i'm going to use it to get free stuff (laughs) yeah you know like uh, using it to like uh get out of class i think she talked about (laughs) you know it's like if you have to go through something this awful hey if there's something that you can do to for it to make your life a little bit easier i get it and and that part seems very understandable this young teen saying, I want cookie cake and pretty things. And so I'm going to like play the cancer card a little bit. That part I get doing it when she's, you know, now decades past it is is hard. Yeah. And that is going to be the big struggle tonally of the show. Two episodes in and I'm really enjoying it. We've got a cast that includes Molly Shannon as uh, uh, Joanna's idol at SVN. And they're clearly establishing an almost uh, Hacks-like relationship. It reminds me a lot of Gene Smart and Hannah Einbinder on Hacks in that one of them is the the, the elderly statesman of the, the format and is struggling with their own life issues. Uh, Molly Shannon's character just got a divorce. She's trying to redefine herself on the network, but the network doesn't want her to talk about the divorce because that's a downer. And so there's a tension there. And she sees something in Joanna, someone who looks up to her and wants to see her own life, you know, grow into hers. Uh, she she sees a, an opportunity to mentor Joanna. And so there's a real interesting dynamic there. And there's some really great character relationship there. But underneath it all is this tension about what's going to happen when people find out Joanna's lying about her cancer. Right. And we have specifically heard Molly Shannon's character say how much she hates liars. So that could be really hard to overcome. And one of the things, too, 
it does remind me of hacks in that sort of um fraught mentor mentee relationship sense but other than a few little glitches they've had they're pretty kind to one another yeah these two characters uh jackie who is the, the elder statesman she's sort of taken joanna under her wing so i think that um it's it's uh doesn't have that same uh combativeness that hacks does um driving driving their conflict i think that's fair it's almost like more like they're gonna have a a, a potential friendship breakup right but beyond that Molly Shannon relationship, one of the other ones that really interested me, the other character dynamics was um, the emerging dynamic with the head of SVN, who is played by the phenomenal Jennifer Lewis, uh, who is really driving Joanna to play up the cancer angle uh, yeah. whenever she's live. Um, and I think she's just giving a, a fantastic comedic performance. I just like eat it up when she's on screen. Yeah. And I, I, I would be remiss to not mention one of my favorite jokes in the pilot. I texted you about this because uh, Jennifer oh, yeah. Lewis, she's in her <laughs> office and her associate, not her assistant, her associate comes in and says, Eric Adams is on the phone. And this just, if you're not a New Yorker, you have to know he's our new mayor. He's a very new mayor. The fact that there's a joke about Eric Adams already resonating in the spring of 2022 means that this is the most current-feeling show I have watched all season, let's say. Uh, It felt, I was like, oh, oh, yes, yes, we've passed the era of, like, dumb Bloomberg or de Blasio jokes, and we've entered the sad, dark era of Eric Adams is on the phone. And Jennifer Lewis says, does he want ads or money? (laughs) That's a hilarious joke if you are a specific kind of New Yorker, let me tell you. And that is a moment I went, man, this show is out to get me. This show sees me, and it, it wants to be seen by me. And I really want to like this show. I really do. I I'm really cheering for it as far as shows go. Like the I would say if there if I had a complaint about these first two episodes is that it's a little uneven balancing the tone of these two. That's the challenge. Issues. That's the, the right? thing that makes me go. So far I am liking this show, but my hesitation where I say I wanna like this show is I don't know how long you can balance the the tonal dissonance of this interesting, funny, warm character dynamic between Joanna and Patricia and Joanna and Jackie and Jackie and Patricia. There's there's a great set of characters who have interesting personal dynamics going on. Then you have the big secret of the cancer lie. And that feels almost unrelated to everything else that's happening in the show sometimes. And that's where I think the tonal dissonance comes from. I think so too. And I think that I I mean maybe they just scrap it. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe know? maybe I, it becomes not a big deal at a certain point. This this is worth talking about because I, I tried to come up with a list of what other comedies in particular, but any show has launched with a a big secret as part of the conceit. And how long could they keep that up before it became either too convoluted or just needed to be abandoned or addressed head on so that the show could move forward? And and it's not an easy parallel to draw, but a couple of, of shows that came to mind for me, ironically, many of them on Showtime, uh, Weeds, which begins mm-hmm. with the big secret of, you know, the suburban housewife is a big time pot dealer. 
back when that was something that was sketchy and not a small business that we all cherish and celebrate. Uh, But that got through three seasons before The Secret was too complicated, too convoluted for the show to make any sense of it anymore. And so they burned a spoiler alert for a show that ended too many years ago for me to care about the spoiler alert. They burned the town down, they moved to a new town, and they kind of rebooted the show. And Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people don't like the show that much after that. But I think that that was, the, in some ways, the right choice at the time because the secret didn't make sense anymore. Yeah. On, on that note, it does also make me think a little bit of, of, of Breaking Bad and, and him keeping uh, so much from his family in the earlier parts of that series um, without going into too many Breaking Bad spoilers. But, um, you know, again, a totally very different show and an hour long and uh the the big one that this made me think of was Mad Men, um, which I am going to give a spoiler for the first season of Mad Men. When available on freebie, available on freebie. <laughs> Where else would you watch? Um, that you know, Don Draper's really Dick Whitman is a big part of that first season, and then as the show progressed, I think that they kind of dropped it as being one of the most important things about him. Yeah, they realized that it wasn't what people were tuning in for, and it wasn't really relevant to the character dynamics in the show. I think the yeah. problem, well, the, the problem may, may not be the right word. The challenge for, I love that for you, is this is really central to the setup of the show. She right. she gets the job, keeps the job after almost losing it because of the lie and is backed into a corner where she doubles down on the lie many, many times. This is going to sound really, really horrible, but when she first said it, I was hoping it was true that we didn't know it yet as an audience and that she really did have cancer, which is a horrible thing to hope for your protagonist to have cancer. But it was like, oh my God, I don't want this woman who seems so sweet and nice and likable and who I'm cheering for to to be lying about, about such an awful thing. Yeah. Um, and then it's revealed in the second episode that she she's not lying or, or she is lying. She's she doesn't have cancer. And yeah, I, I do wonder when you talk about Breaking Bad, one direction the show could go that would be interesting for sure and maybe extremely successful would be essentially to have Joanna break bad. If she embraces, we've already seen in the flashbacks that when she was a teenager, when she actually had cancer, she was an expert manipulator and she used it to get what she wanted. And she is accidentally in that position again uh, and could embrace it, could realize that this is her ticket to success. More more Mm -hmm. likely, I think they're going to keep backing her into corners where it feels like her only out. And I don't. I don't find that as intriguing because it's a little passive to say, well, it's not that she wanted to manipulate people. It's that she backed into this corner where she had no choice to ben- but to manipulate people. And she feels really guilty about it. And that, that helps humanize her, but also is less intriguing because it is just her, it is in a way saying, well, it's not her fault that she told this lie when in fact it is. And it is more interesting for her to own it. Yeah. I agree with that. I don't know what the future of the show would be if she goes too dark. I don't think that that's a super popular brand of comedy right now. And it doesn't seem like that's where the jokes are hitting. It doesn't have that sort of like always sunny kind of humor where you just have like, oh, my God, the depravity. 
you know, a lot more of the jokes are about this fun, silly, heightened world. Um, And it is a fun world. Like, that's the part of the show that I love so much. Uh, These relationships and then also just the world of SVN is fun to get a peer into. It is a workplace comedy in a lot of ways. And some of the Mm -hmm. warmest, most uh, laugh out loud moments in the first two episodes are workplace comedy moments about this very unusual workplace that you also don't need to be deep in the home shopping universe to completely understand the jokes. Like, if you've ever seen 30 Seconds of any home shopping spiel you instantly understand the dynamics and it, it is it is a funny show so i hope that they can find that balance me too me too and and all that is to say it's really intriguing and i'm gonna watch through this whole season because i want to see where they take it and what direction they're going and for a, a show that is you know so far got a small season order uh, they they could move in that direction of well we don't have to worry about how long we can keep up the lie as a central conceit because even if we run three seasons that might only be like eighteen episodes which is the length of one traditional network season on the short sure. side so you know the question of well, how long can you keep it up isn't as important if you don't have as many episodes per season but it, it still is a question of well. How long do you want to draw out the suspense of who will find out? And then if someone finds out, how do you address that? And does it become a, a you know a domino after another domino after another domino of, well, now two people know, and now three people know, and will all four of these people keep the secret? Or do you bust it all out at once? Do you find another way out of it? Do you let it fall into the background a little bit? I, that's definitely not the plan this season. You can tell that it's going to be a main event for the majority of this season. But as they move into future seasons, potentially, do they just reassess and go, well, that was the story of season one, and now that's on the back burner. And maybe it comes up from time to time to remind us that that lie is still you know, central to her character, but maybe it's not the focus of season two or season three down the road. Yeah, I would really like whatever experience she has of this lie to bring her to a better place <laughs> eventually. And listen, there are shows that have done that really well. I was singing my love of The Good Place earlier, and The Good Place is fundamentally a show about a horrible woman who does despicable mm-hmm. things, who you grow to absolutely love and becomes a better person. That is the, yeah. the arc of The Good Place. And so, the, and that's very well done and very funny the whole way through and does evolve kind of tonally as it goes on. They, they shift focus season to season to take you on that character journey. So, you know, this is definitely not that level of zany, but you're right in that it, it plays in some of the same warm, heightened humor. I do have faith in a lot of the people creating this. I, I, you know, I think Vanessa Bayer is very funny. Jesse Klein, who is the showrunner, yeah. is great. Um, people may know her from Big Mouth. Um, she's also got a, a new book out. She's, she's wonderful. <laughs> Your so. parents may know her as a panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't mm-hmm. Tell Me. Yes. <laughs> I love that show. So I, I think, you know, I, I hope that it can find where it's going. And that also just makes me think that, like, most comedies take a little while to find themselves. And I'm curious what that means on streaming where episodes are dropped week to week or where, um, you know, there's so much competition right now, what that looks like versus like a traditional network show. Yeah, it it makes me think of Our Flag Means Death, which we recently Mm -hmm. talked about. That needed a few episodes to find itself. 
uh, and and to great effect because once it did find itself, the journey made it. Uh, let me say the destination made the journey worth it. The, de- the destination Definitely. made you value the journey you took to get there and not just think, well, I wish you'd figured it out two episodes ago. You went, yeah, it took you like two or three episodes to get here. But now that you're here, I really appreciate knowing these characters as well as I do. And so far on, on this show, I've really enjoyed getting to know these characters. And so if they take it somewhere really exciting or unexpected or just rewarding, then the journey was worth it. Well, and my hope for it is that, like our flag means death, as it finds itself, its audience will find it. Yeah. And I have that concern with Showtime. Uh-huh. I think this is a great place for us to end because my other big question is just Showtime is an, a really unusual destination for a show like this. They don't have a lot of comedy in their roster right now. Their last big comedy was Shameless, which is a comedy in name only in some ways. Like, sure, it's got jokes, but it's really a depressing melodrama soap opera uh, uh, that happens to have one-liners. Uh, you know, I, I they haven't had a big comedy lineup in a long time. And certainly they did have Weeds and they had some really iconic shows that are in this kind of dark comedy genre. But boy, that's not their bread and butter. Their most popular shows recently were Yellow Jackets and Dexter. And the structure of a Showtime show seems to be that it builds on its craziness particularly their successful comedies. And I don't think that this is going to do that. Like I, it's a, they seem to actually follow that depravity model. Like think something like weeds, something like Californication, you watch these characters and a part of what you're tuning in for is I can't believe someone would do this. And same thing with something like shameless where it's like comedy through shock value. Yeah. And this does not feel like that. I mean, it is shocking that she's doing this cancer lie. That is shocking and hard to watch. But it doesn't seem like the part of the show that I'm tuning in for. No, at least not so far, which is the complicated thing. It's the hook in the premise that makes you go, well, that's that's an interesting premise. But when you actually watch it, it's not the hook that makes you want to keep watching. Mm -mm. Though, you know, we watched two episodes which is nothing. I mean, it's an hour of our lives. And it could be an hour of your life, dear listener, if you check out I Love That For You on Showtime. And if you do check it out, well, I love that for you. I think it's a great decision. I think you should go check it out if you have Showtime. And if you don't have Showtime, maybe you have Paramount Plus, and then you can add Showtime to it for like two bucks a month or whatever, which I think is the strategy. I think it's just, well, we have some fancier shows that you can pay a little extra for in addition to watching all of the CBS procedurals and all of the Yellowstone spinoffs that are not Yellowstone. And all of the Star Trek shows that are, you know, on CBS All Access. I'm sorry, Paramount Plus. It's called Paramount Plus now. Uh, (laughs) And so if you love all of those kind of mismatched, odd bedfellows that live together on Paramount Plus, and you want a really interesting comedy with a fantastic cast and a premise that will leave you wondering, how do they thread this needle? Well, then you could add Showtime to your Paramount Plus subscription and check out I Love That For You. God, streaming is so confusing. I struggled to understand the collection of shows that I was trying to describe together. How do these all belong on one service? 
I don't know, but I'm happy to be navigating that with you here Thank on you Stream so Again. If you too, <laughs> listener, are confused about all of this, well, we're here for you. And we will be here again in your feed in two weeks with another new episode. We are off next week trying to find our way out of the streaming wilderness. We're attending the upfronts. That's what we're doing. We're attending the upfronts <laughs> next week. We're going to hear the pitches. We're going to take some meetings. We're going to tell them, oh, network comedy's dead. Pitch us one that's funny and original. JK, that's not what they like. Uh, But if you have a question for us or a suggestion for us, or if you're just trying to wrap your head around what's going on in the streaming universe, you can reach out to us. Our email address is podcast at streamageddon.com. And you can find us on Twitter. I am at I am Chris Barlow. Diane is at Diane Nora with two N's and then another one in Nora. Uh, (laughs) Three total, if you're counting. And that is everything we have this week in Streamageddon universe. It has been an exhausting week, which I said last week, but then I'm going to say it again this week because the streaming universe never stops. And neither do we. Ah, you could say that again. Why not leave on a jazzy note? <laughs>